The Sanctuary, a community of Jesus people promoting the glory of God in all things to all nations through gospel-centered missional living. Whether it be working with groups in Africa to build orphanages and help rid the continent of AIDS, or feeding the hungry, giving to the oppressed, and helping the hurting who live in our own community, The Sanctuary invites you to be part of a culture of passionate service. You can change your world. Be inspired. Join the movement. It's good to see you guys um, all this morning. We're going to be getting into our Pathways um, series. We've done this. This will be our our third time that we've gone back and touched on uh, different aspects of Pathways. And basically what we've done as a church, and when you come to our covenant membership class, uh, we talk about our growth goals. These are kind of our uh, nine core disciplines or the core areas of the, the, the life, the spiritual life, Christian life that we'd like to see you develop that we think are exceptionally biblical. And uh, so we've gone back and tried to build um, very approachable and simple ways for you to, to do that, to grow spiritually. And um, so t- today we're going to be talking about loving. We've talked about being loving before. I wanted to kind of go back and start the year with that. Um, we've mapped all of it out for you. There's a table in the back. Um, our model, Jason, is there modeling the table. Good job, Jason. And um, back there by that, that table or on that table are all the resources. There's a lot of books there, but there's slips of paper. If you're like, oh, I don't want to read something. There's just these slips of paper, and on those slips on the back of them, uh, they outline that particular growth goal or that particular pathway. Um, so there, there's some videos to watch. We have Right Now Media, which you can get a subscription to. You just email us. We get you a, a rights to that. And uh, there's videos you can watch. There's very practical, relational things that you can do. Um, but really, and I don't know, we, we've, what we've tried to do is sort of idiot-proof it, okay? Because we're all ignorant in certain areas of our lives. We don't know how to get here. We don't know how to do that. And so we've done our best just to kind of map it out and make it as simple as possible. So uh, those are back there. I want to encourage you to do that. Um, the other thing I would point out is there's a, a new book on the table. It's called uh, Everybody Always. And it deals specifically with uh, what we're talking about today, about being loving. And the subtitle is, it says, Becoming Love in a World Full of Setbacks and Difficult People. And uh, I just find this to be a very uh, helpful, uh, relatable uh, guide and help for you. So there's actually a couple of resources that go with loving, but this is back there. um, And uh, I would encourage you guys to go back there and check all that out, okay? Um, The other thing I want to talk about before we get going... We're going to be in John chapter 13. If you want to turn your scriptures, that's fine. We'll have it on the screen. But uh, the other thing I want to point out is uh, Uganda child sponsorships. So we've done this, I think this will be our third year um, to do our, our child sponsorships. And um, this is an opportunity for you to sponsor a child, obviously, in Uganda. And uh, we partnered with Pastor James. And uh, in Uganda, we have... I think 70, 69, 70 kids um, that we sponsor. So again, the details elude me, but I think for around $29 a month, um, you, this is what you get for that. This is what that child gets for that. Um, they go to school. They get all their school books covered. They get uniforms covered for school. Part of their tuition is covered for school. They get a warm meal every day, and some of them get a place to sleep. You cannot replicate that kind of bang for your buck, Okay. And I'm not picking on any other organization, but Compassion International, there's not another organization that you're going to go through where you get that kind of return for the money that you're putting in. So uh, next week, we'll we'll have an opportunity for you to jump into that. Some of you can continue with the child that you've got now. 
Um, some of our kids have graduated out or they've moved out of the area, so we've picked up some other kids. So next week we're going to have that all set up, uh, and you'll be ready to go with that. So I encourage you to start thinking like that um, if the Lord wants you to, to sponsor one of these kids. Uh, and then also with Uganda, the trip is going to come sooner than you think. That's June or end of May. I forget. I don't know if we've really nailed down the exact date yet, but somewhere at the beginning of the summer. And some of you want to go and you haven't responded yet. You need to let us know. Nick is right here. Rick is over here. You can come see me or one of these guys, and we'll get you some information about that. Okay? So we're going to be in John chapter 13. I wanted to start out uh, actually kind of recapping what we talked about on New Year's Eve. So some of us were here New Year's Eve, and if you were here, I don't want to repeat the whole thing. But I wanted to start out with this again because I've just found it to be very, um, I guess, inspiring and challenging for me uh, coming into the new year. So it's Ecclesiastes chapter 11. 1 through 5. I'm not going to read it. You can, you can read it at some point. But it has this weird phrase in there, and it talks about casting our bread on the water. And then it talks about uh, the, the uh, waters will come and the winds will blow and nobody knows what's going to happen. Then at the end it says God's got a plan. He's working out in all things. Um, so those five verses have really kind of captured my heart and my attention over the last six or seven weeks. And in particular, the thing that I think I'm coming away with is this idea of casting your bread on the water. And so you and I are like, I don't even know what that means. All right, so just quickly, let me explain. Casting your bread upon the water, you, you, these people lived in areas that were dependent on farming, agriculture, um, and almost always you would have spring flooding, or maybe even fall flooding in certain places, uh, where the rivers and the creeks and whatever would just completely flood the area. They were smart enough not to build in floodplains, unlike some people here. Right? And so they didn't have their homes there, but they would have their farmlands there. And so what they meant was they would go out as those floodwaters receded, and maybe they were by their ankles, just pretty, pretty. They would wade out into those waters and take their seed and throw them on those floodwaters. And as the floodwaters receded and they went back into the ground and that rich sediment had been deposited there, those seeds found a home and they grew. And that's where their next harvest came from. And, and I think for me, I'm walking away from or into, I guess, out of 2018 into 2019. And I'm like, man, I want to do that. I want to cast my bread on the water, right? I don't know what, where the wind's going to blow or where the waves are going to go or what's going to happen, but I'm going to trust that as I cast my seed out into this water of life, that the Lord's working things out for a harvest, right? And, and, and I think specifically for me, I really want to focus on investing in people, making sure that, that what I'm doing in 2019, and this is really going to form the core of what we're going to talk about today. I want to make sure that what I'm doing is casting my bread and investing in people. And even though it's floodwaters so many times, you know, when you invest in people, it's just sort of disaster. Pe we're disasters, man. We're walking disasters a lot of times. And you're just throwing stuff into people's lives, right? And I want to just trust the Lord, okay, that he's going to make sure that as those floodwaters recede and life returns to some sense of normalcy for them, that something's going to take root, amen? And I'm just going to, I want to invest in, in people um, this year. So the other thing I would point out from that Ecclesiastes passage is that this can't be done in a miserly way. It has to be done kind of ridiculously generously. I, I, I can't go into this idea of investing in people and go, okay, well, I've got a sack full of seeds here. I don't know what's going to happen in your life, so I'll give you one seed. And I hope that something happens with that one seed. Good luck with that. I got to come along and just throw seed, man. 
I don't know what's going to happen in you. I'm just going to throw seed into your life, right? It's got to be ridiculously, generously investing in people. This is one of the things that, that marked the early church was a generosity that was ridiculous, that didn't make sense to people. Um, one author said that the early church had a powerful witness in their world because they were the opposite of their culture, right? So that's what we want to be. We want to be the opposite of our culture. So what did that early church look like? He said that they were conservative with their bodies, but promiscuous with their wallets. Now, doesn't that sound like our culture? Wouldn't that be the opposite of our culture? Our culture says, be promiscuous with your body and stingy with your wallets. So if we want to have the kind of impact that first early church has, we probably should do much the same thing. Be conservative with our bodies, generous with our wallets. And now let's just expand wallets out into any resource you have. Let's be radically generous with whatever it is the Lord's given us to invest in other people, and let's see what kind of impact we can make on the world around us. Now, how did the early church did that? Because they really believed, they really believed this passage in 2 Corinthians that said that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich in him. They really believed that. So everybody was generous, not just the rich people, not just the people who had a bunch, but everybody was generous. You have it in Scripture. We have so many stories recorded in Scripture. You have wealthy Zacchaeus, wee little man, right? He was a rich man, and he was generous with what he had. Bankrupt Macedonians further in the New Testament. These people had nothing, yet they scrounged together an offering for people who were in need in a famine in another part of the world. And that kind of radical generosity was just all over the early church. So I guess I just wanted to start out with that and just say that's kind of where the Lord has hit me a lot, kind of coming out of last year, going into this year, that we would be, that I would be uh, radically investing, generously investing um, in other people's lives and not, not on the guarantee of a particular kind of harvest, but the guarantee that he's going to work a harvest into their lives. And I'm going to trust that, right, as I generously sow into other people's lives, right? So let's kind of head into the new year, and we're going to continue to talk about that as we get into um, what we're talking about today in John. I think it dovetails very nicely. Over the break, um, our family went to a funeral um, in East Texas. And at that funeral... um, Somebody said, I don't even remember who it was, but, but somebody said about the person that we were memorializing, they said that a life that isn't invested in others is a wasted life. And that just struck me kind of automatically when they said that. A life that is not invested in others is a wasted life. Now, that statement was made in the shadow, okay, that was at the, the actual funeral or the day of the funeral, the night before when they had the viewing, and some of us have been to viewings and things like that, they were there for four and a half hours. Hundreds, I, I've never seen anything like it, hundreds of people lying outside the church into the parking lot of people waiting to come in and tell this family how much this person meant to them. A life that is not invested in people is a life that is wasted. And that, that statement is just kind of, stuck in my head and I want to challenge us here at the very very beginning this morning listen I'm not saying that there may be hundreds of people at your funeral that's probably not the right measuring stick and I don't want to make that the right measuring stick but I am going to ask this question who are you influencing in your life right now 
You pass from this world tomorrow. Who's coming to your family and saying, they invested in me. They loved me. She loved me really well. He gave so much to me. I can't tell you. So it's not that there would be hundreds of people there, although that's amazing. Would there be one outside of your immediate family? Would there be one person who would come to your funeral and say, they gave so much, they loved me so well, they invested so much in me? It really got me thinking, as I was getting ready for this today, when do we stop thinking about ourselves primarily? And I'm, I'm 48, I don't know if I'm there yet, right? When, when, do we, when do our thoughts and our desires and our heart's direction kind of stop being primarily focused on ourselves, on being me first? And, and I'm thinking, well, is it when I enter adulthood? Is it when I, when I turn 18? Is it when I turn 21? I know those of you who have teenagers, you're asking, please, God, let it be now, right? When do we stop thinking about ourselves first? Is it adulthood? Is it marriage? How many of you are married and you would say, yeah, I got married and everything was all about them? <laughs> You're a liar, right? No. That's probably when we find out how selfish we are, right? How self-focused we are is when we bring another human being into our little orbit. And we're like, oh my gosh, they're not all about me all the time. Right? Parenthood is it when we have kids. If you have kids, you know the answer is nope. <laughs> you realize how much of what goes on with your children still revolves around you. Is it grandparenthood? I guess I'm waiting for somebody to go, this is when it happens. <laughs> this is when you get to the point where, where you're not thinking primarily about yourself. So I would say this, I think that in a, a Christian worldview, we're not hopeless here, and in a Christian worldview, a, a Christian approach to life, I, I'd say the answer to that question, when does that happen? It happens at conversion. Now, not perfectly, but it does start the day, the moment that I, I give myself to Jesus Christ, right? That I hear the gospel and I respond to it. At some point during this process, I stop thinking primarily about me. And there's a, there's a process, right, that I think God's working in me. That he's working in all of us who are following him. Where he's giving us the mind of Christ. And he's working in us this ability, this natural ability, this knee-jerk response. That's what I... That's what I talk about when I talk about the Christian, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Man, it's my knee-jerk responses. I don't want to think three thoughts before I get to a godly thought. I want my first thought to be a godly thought. That's my knee-jerk response, right? And I have hope that the Holy Spirit is changing my knee-jerk responses. So I think that the Holy Spirit is working in me to give me the mind of Christ so that I stop thinking primarily first about me. That my first thoughts really are about somebody else. About giving myself to someone else. Mother Teresa said this. She said, it's more important to do small things with great love than to do great things with little love. It's more important to do small things with great love than to do great things with little love. I don't think that what we're going to look at today, and Jesus won't, he won't present it like this either. I don't think this is an add-on to the Christian life. Honestly, I'm not sure which parts of the Christian life are the add-ons, to be honest. You know, there's so much involved in following Christ. Um, I don't know which part would actually be sort of the add-on, you know, like, would you like bacon or sausage with that salvation? I'll have some humility today, you know, that kind of thing. I don't think it works exactly like that. Um, 
I don't think that these things that we've identified as our pathways, I don't think that those are optional things. I think if you were to look over that table and, and see what our growth goals are, we would agree, no, those are core things. Like, I should be pursuing each of these things um, in my life. And I think love and loving others is very much like that. Elton Trueblood, some of you may know who he was. He was a great Quaker thinker in the early part of the 20th century. He said, this is great. He said, a man has made at least a start on discovering the meaning of human life. Like, wow, Pastor Joe's going to give us the meaning of human life. When he plants shade trees under which he knows he will never sit. Wow. I mean, it's not about staying skinny. It's not about eating right. It's not about having a bigger house or a better house or a cleaner house. It's not about having a thousand friends on Facebook. It's not about having a 485-day internet or a chat, Snapchat thing, streak, whatever, with a friend. <laughs> That's not what life's about. Guys, I, I, I come to today, I want to tell you this is so close to my heart. I want to plant trees under which I'll never sit. I want to invest in loving other people. I think most of us connect with this idea that I need to be loved. I don't think that's foreign to any of us. Like, I need to be loved. I want somebody to love me. I think that's a core need. If, if you look at any psychological study of the human condition, being loved and accepted is a core human need. I would say this. What we've also found out, strangely enough, in the 20th century, when everything was really about me, We've also come to see through studies, we've come to understand that there's a parallel need that's almost as strong as being loved, and that's to love somebody else and to care for someone else. Both those needs in us are almost identically as strong. Matter of fact, there were studies then that if I gave you 20 bucks, $20, and I said you could spend it on anything you wanted to, you were happier when you gave it away to somebody else or you spend it on somebody else. A little counterintuitive, we would think, oh no, I'm going to go buy half of a new shoe, because we can't even buy new shoes for $20 anymore, right? So I'm going to go buy something that I like. I'm going to purchase something on, on iTunes, and then I'll be happier, and then I'm going to pay for my Netflix for the next three months, and then I'll be happier. When in reality, I'm actually happier and more fulfilled when I give those things away to someone else, because the, the need in our bodies and our minds and our spirits, our makeup, not just to be loved, but to love and care for somebody else are almost identically as strong as the need to be loved is. So we have that need, this desire in us. There's another thing that's really interesting here as we go along with that. So we want to be loved, we want to be nurtured, but we also want to love somebody else. We want to care for somebody else. We want to nurture somebody else. There's a condition in the human condition called homophily, which is the same love is what that means. And it means this. It means when you are generous and loving, you attract generous and loving people around you. No, that's good to know. So as I want to be loved, one of the surest ways to get there is what? Love other people. Right? Now you can dog on that motivation all you want to, but at the end of the day, that person's probably super happy. <laughs> right? They're loving somebody else and boomeranging back to them is love. They're generous in their love to other people and boomeranging back to them is generous, generous love to them. I, I would, and I'm not really being silly, I would really say... The only reason I have anybody loving and generous in my life is because I got to hang out with this lady for 28 years. 
She's loving and generous too, like a fault. So I get the benefit of that. I get loving and generous people in my life because she's showed me and taught me some of that stuff. Studies have shown us this about love. Here's the other thing that's great. I think that, that echoes or reflects the, the Christian condition more than anything else. The other thing we found out is you're more generous. You tend to be just generally speaking. You're more generous when you believe you have enough to give away. Which kind of makes sense, right? If you have two pennies, maybe I'll give you one. I'll give 50%, right? If you have dollar, you 50 cents. I've got 50 cents, right? So if you're convinced that you've got enough, you'll give away. So what do we know about love? I'm not asking you to drudge love up in your hearts for each other. God loved you, according to 1 John, with a lavish love. He lavished love on you is what it says. We have this endless, bottomless well of love that we have access to. If I really believe that, I'll love you well and generously. If I don't believe that, if I think I have some limited amount of love, or I'm not very loved, I'm not going to give you love. So this speaks directly to what we believe about God, directly to what we believe about ourselves and our relationship with him. So that then comes, are you generously loving other people? If not, why not? Is it because you don't really believe that God lavishly loves you? He loves me, but he doesn't really like me all the time. If you're carrying that around in your heart, you're not going to love other people well. You've got to believe what Scripture says about you. You have to believe what Scripture says about us, right? That we are the object of his love. We're the apple of his eye. Isn't that awesome? That's what the Old Testament says. We're the apple of God's eye. And he has lavished love on us, and that makes it easier maybe for me to love other people. So if I tell you that you're supposed to love other people, what do you immediately start thinking about? What's your knee-jerk response? I have to love other people. That means I, I should... What do you start filling the blank in with that? Uh, we're going to do a little exercise. Some of you have pens and paper out. If you get your phone out, that's fine. I don't care right now. Make sure it doesn't ring or anything. But get something out to write on. I want you to answer, answer two questions for me. I want you to write something down. I think it would be good for you to see it in paper. First thing I want you to do, I want you to write down the name of two people that you love outside of your immediate family. Mom and dad don't count. Your spouse doesn't count. Your children don't count. I'm going to go beyond cousins, Okay. Someone you're not biologically related to, and you would say, man, I love that person. I love them. Two names. Some of you have already failed the quiz. You're, I don't have anybody, okay? Two people. Write that down. Now, I want you to just kind of have in your head, maybe you can underline them or make a star. beside. If they fit this criteria, I want you to acknowledge it somehow or another. Are they like you? Not do they like you. Are they like you? Are they like you? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do they reflect who you are? Do, do they mirror you in a lot of ways? Um, that kind of, that's the question. Are they like you? Are they people who are, who are like you? Now, the next question I want to ask, and this is the dumb one, do they like you? <laughs> so, are they like you? And then the second question is, do they like you? Now, the answer to those last two questions is probably yes. We tend to do what? Love people who love us, and we tend to love people who are like us, right? Now, for the, for the Holy Spirit and Jesus, you know, everybody watch the old cruddy, West, like the fake wrestling, not the really, <laughs> and they're throwing chairs at each other. Jesus is about to jump in the ring and just, he's about to hammer us here, ready? Matthew chapter 5, 
verses 46 and 47, Jesus says this, you love people who love you, congratulations, you're just like the pagans. They love everybody who loves them and they love everybody who's like them. Your definition of love this morning should be radically challenged, radically challenged. If we walk out of here thinking I'm loving because I love people who are like me, I love people because I love people who like me, we've missed the point of biblical love. We've missed the point of New Testament Christian love, if that's how we're defining love. Or we're looking at ourselves as being loving, and that's who we're primarily throwing our love at to say that we're loving. We're missing the point. We haven't quite connected yet with the heart of God when God says to look like me, to love people like me, which he tells us repeatedly to do, again, especially in the New Testament. So I just wanted to start with that challenge us to kind of have that in our heads. Who am I loving? Why am I loving them? Right? Is it, is it really ultimately sort of a selfish sort of love? How am I loving them? What does love even look like? And then we'll start to de- define. I think Jesus is going to make some things clear. Christ makes some things a lot clearer um, as we look at this passage. So John chapter 13, we want to seek to be like him. Jesus says this. This is the last night of his life. He's, this is the upper room. He, he's, uh, uh, this is the Lord's Supper. Okay, This is when they're having Passover together. Um, and, and he's teaching them a little bit while, while he's with them. And look in verse 34. He says, a new, this is the, like the last night he's with them, right? So this must be important. This isn't take out the trash when I'm not home, right? This is an important thing. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. How? Even as I have loved you, that you also would love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. How will they know that you and I follow Christ? How do they know? How will they know we're we're his disciples? Will it be our doctrine is right and our worship is awesome and our Bible studies are nice? No, he says you're going to love one another. You're going to love each other. I I think, and man, I I got two millennials in my home. I'm going to have a third millennial in my home before long. And so I'm not picking on anybody in particular, but I do think that our children are the product of what we've made them, mom and dad. So we bear the brunt of what the issues are here. But it is interesting. There's a guy, Jeffrey Arnett, he wrote a book called Emerging Adulthood. And he says this about people who are between 18 and 34. That's the group he was studying. He says this. He says, working, studying for classes, chatting and texting with friends, keeping up with social networking sites, hanging out at parties and shows keep emerging adults too busy to worry about public life and the common good. So when I tell you, when I say to you that Jesus says, how are they going to know that you love me or that you follow me by loving each other? There is a generation sitting in this room and your biggest struggle is you can't get outside of your own little world to go find somebody to love. Now, mom and dad, we've created that world for them, so we, we bear responsibility here in a lot of ways for the culture that we've made. But those of you who are Christian young people, and you can hear my voice, I want to just challenge you, break the mold. You want to radically change your generation? Get out of your little tiny circle that you've created for yourself on your Xbox and on your Facebook and on your phone and on your Snapchat. Break out of that. Get involved in people's lives. Lovingly invest in other people, and you will be a radical person in your generation. 
you will reflect the love of Christ in a way that no one in your generation understands or sees because you're loving each other electronically. And you guys have an opportunity to do it in a very real way. Love one another. That's how we show people that we are following Christ. It is possible, I think. Jesus says, how are you going to know, how are people going to know that you follow me? How we love others. And then this is the real kicker. It's not just everybody. We should love everyone, yes. But he's very specific. He's like, how you guys love each other. Especially Christians. How we especially love people who say that they follow Christ also. That's how we love God. So here's what I'm going to say. This is a bad old cliche, but I think it fits. It really is possible to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. It really is possible to love Jesus so much that you can't love other people well. To love Bible study so much that you can't love other people well. To love doing good things that you can't love other people well. You see what I'm saying? And we've confused even those good things with what it looks like to follow Christ. The primary marker of following Christ is loving other people. 1 John 4.20 says this. It says it even stronger. So this is the Gospel of John. He writes three other letters later. They're little bitty letters. And in his little letter, 1 John chapter 4, he says this, that our love for God is revealed in how we love other people. So you can talk to me all day about how you love God, but at some point or another, there's a fruit inspector that comes along and says, let me inspect your fruit. How are you loving other Christians? That tells me how much you love God. I'm not making that metric up. That is John. That's the scriptures. Jesus said it. Okay? So I'm just repeating what he said. He basically, God makes it almost impossible for us to fake Christianity. Now, we've allowed people to fake Christianity, right? By getting Sunday school pins or getting degrees on the wall or giving so much money to X building project. We've allowed people to sort of fake through Christianity, but in reality, the metric's pretty clear. Do you love other Christians? So the great test of what it looks like to love God, if I'm really following Christ, isn't how much um, we love, uh, is, is how much we love believers. It is that, especially those people who are in our scope of influence. I do sometimes have people who will come here and they'll be like, man, I love the Sanctuary Fellowship. I love this church. Can you help me move? Can you counsel my kids? Can you pay my bills? Can you help my spouse? Can you give me a women's Bible study? Every now and then. I get somebody who will come here and say, I love the Sanctuary Fellowship because I get to give myself away to these people. Because you give me an opportunity. Matter of fact, Pastor Joe, you won't quit telling me how to, tell, how to give myself to other people. You kind of force it down my throat all the time. And I love it. I love this church because I have an opportunity to just give myself away and show people love on a regular basis. I personally think that we love each other pretty well here. We're not perfect, Okay. So you can definitely throw your stones at our glass house, all right? I get it. We're not perfect at this, but I think we're pretty good at it. I would echo for our church and for our church family, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You don't need to turn there. Verses 9 and 10, the same exhortation, the same encouragement that Paul gives the church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica, I want to give it to you. Now, as to the love of the brethren, so he's like his loving brothers, you have no need for anybody to write you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. He's like, you're doing a great job. I don't even have to tell you how to love each other. You're doing it so well. 
for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. There he goes. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Excel still more. To make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, work with your hands just as we commanded you, that all people will see, outsiders will see what the love of God looks like. So I would echo that for our church. I think we love each other pretty well, but I want to encourage you, excel still more in that. Romans chapter 12 says this, outdo one another in showing love for each other. <laughs> Isn't that great? Makes it, he turns it into a competition. Wow, they were really loving. I'm going to be more loving than that. <laughs> outdo one another in how you show love to each other. In another place, Paul says this, he says, serve one another without grumbling. So you can take even this idea of loving each other and showing love to each other as a source of bitterness. Man, I'm really busy, and you make a meal for somebody else, and I got to deliver to their house, and I'm like, gosh, what you asked me to do? Uh, okay, I love you. Here's a gift card. <laughs> you know what I mean? Francis Schaeffer, if I have any idols in Christianity, he's one of my, my idols. He said this, he said, Jesus turns to the world. Now, this is very interesting. Jesus looks at the world. He doesn't look at us. He looks at a watching world, and he says this. I have something to say to you. On the basis of my authority, I give you a right. You may judge whether or not an individual is a Christian on the basis of the love that he shows to other Christians. How do we get into this? Now, some of us are like, but I do love other Christians. How many of you ever talk badly about another church or another pastor? How many of you ever slough somebody off because they're bothering you at church or on the phone or with a text message? How many of you have ever talked over your dinner table about someone in the church who wore something you didn't like, said something you didn't like, did something you didn't like? Are your kids watching that? Are your neighbors hearing that? Are your coworkers? What are they seeing? Jesus looked at them and said, You'll know if they're my believers by how they love each other. This is hard, harder than it looks, harder than it sounds. How do we get there? I think, first of all, you count yourself lower than other people. Count yourself lower than other people, right? Don't be judging people all the time and passing judgment on people all the time. I'm lower than, I'd love to serve you. How can I serve you, man? Your needs are greater than my needs. How can I put you here? Count yourself lower than other people. Secondly, count yourself loved enough to give away love to other people. We talked about that. God has more than enough love for me. I can love you. I'm not going to lose out here. I'm not going to run out of love to give you. I'm drawing on the well, the bottomless well of love God, God's love for me, and I can love you. Third thing, look for obvious practical ways to love other people. Obvious practical ways to love other people. I don't want to, we've all been here, right? When something goes bad and you call somebody or text them or see them face to face and you tell them what? If you ever need anything, call me, let me know. Now listen, that's part of the, we don't even know what to do, right? We don't know what to say. And I, I don't think that that's a disingenuous thing. But sometimes you can just go, hey, I'm going to come mow your yard. Hey, I'm going to come clean your house. Hey, I'm bringing food to you tonight. You can't tell me no. Hey, I'm going to take your kids for the weekend because I know y'all are just ragged out. Obvious, practical ways. I love you. Call me if you need something. Or I love you. I'm going to do this for you. 
obvious practical ways, jump in, show love toward each other. And then the other thing I would say is like, you kind of need to understand this is like why, this is one of the core reasons I think why Jesus leaves us here. I was saved when I was 12. This would have been a lot easier if he had just taken me home, to be honest. You know what I'm saying? Like he just saved me and I'm 12. And, hey, you're done, done. Come up here and I'll just make you perfect. I think one of the core reasons he leaves us here is so that we learn what it looks like to love other Christians. I'm going to spend eternity with you guys. Forever. I hope I have a little man cave somewhere, but for the most part, we'll be hanging out, all right? And he's teaching us, I think, how to love one another. This is one of the reasons why we are here to serve, to love, and not be served, and not be loved. Like Sanders, you're laying it on thick. Philippians chapter 2, go look at it. Let us have the mind of Christ. What was the mind of Christ? That he came as a baby in poverty, and that he died, and he didn't just die any death. He died the death of a criminal to serve us and to love us. And he says, have the same mind about yourselves. So what does it look like here? Listen, here's what this looks like. And I'm picking on about six of you because I wrote you an email in December. You can lead a life group. I love this church. Well, then step up and lead a life group. I love this church. You know what? Park at Walmart. I don't know what the parking lot looks like right now, but I think if you went out there, there's, some, there's, there's not spaces. Just, if you're here, if you love people here, just park at Walmart. There's a little tiny hill, and you got to go up it. I get it. I do it every Sunday. Park at the Walmart right there. Help somebody find a seat. Mentor a young couple. Man, y'all, this is really heavy on my heart right now, okay? We're growing up as a church, so we've got our kids growing up, getting married, coming back here. We need to pour into our young marrieds, okay? Mentor a young couple here. Usher here. Be part of setup here. Guys, show up here early in the morning to set up. Be an AV team, car care ministry, women's ministry. I can go on and on. You create your own ministry, we'll get in with you. Divorce care ministry is coming up. You can be a part of all these things. Practical, obvious Way. Some of us have been blessed with great churches, like great churches, man. You know, we grew up in a great church, or maybe we got started in a great church, and we have these wonderful, wonderful memories of receiving love. And maybe it's happened here. I hope it's been here for you, right? Um, or some group of believers. Man, listen, invest that in somebody else. Give that to somebody else. Do you really think that that's why God gave that to you? So you could put it on a shelf and look at it and talk about it and memorialize it and burn candles to it and talk about how great it was? No. It was somebody else's investment in you, and you're supposed to turn around and give it to somebody else. Invest that wonderful love that you've had from somebody else. And here's the thing I would challenge you with. Do it better than they did it. How did, how did they love you? How well did they love you? Love somebody else better than that. Excel even more at the love that you have in this church and for other believers. So what does that look like? For Jesus, it, it wasn't a, a sentimental feeling, right? Oh, I feel really warm when I think about the sanctuary, and I feel really warm when I think about Jesus, and he just makes all my troubles go away. Da, 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 da. For Jesus, man, it meant action. Like lovingly acting for other people's benefit, putting one's love into real-world activities. We just read verses 34 and 35. Would you just jump back? Maybe just, you don't have to turn the page for some of us, but the first verse of, of chapter 13, first five verses. Let me give you the, the stage, set the scene for you, when he says, I'm going to give you a new commandment, love each other. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, listen to what he says, 
having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Listen to what he says. He got up from supper, he laid aside his garments, and he took a towel, and he girded himself, and he washed their feet. This is when I think the rubber really hits the road. When Jesus says to you, when he says to you, a new commandment I give to you, love one another, what has he just done? The lowest job a slave could get was to wash the grime and the stink off of people's feet. Jesus did it. So when Christ says, I'm telling you, love each other, that's what's resonating in their head, that he just stooped down and washed their feet. It's not some elite group of believers. It's not your favorite group of believers. It's not everybody who likes to stun the eschatology when Jesus is coming back of believers. It's not that group that he's telling you to love. The other thing that I think is, I don't know, man, worldview shaping here is that in the introduction to the passage, it, it mentions Judas specifically by name. This guy's about to go out and put him on a cross. Jesus washes his feet. And then he looks at me and he tells me to do the same thing. This isn't mamby-pamby Sunday school love we're talking about here, man. This is hardcore, life-changing, heart-changed love. That means we have to include people in our love that, quite frankly, we would rather forget. That's so hard. Just a great love. We sang about it, the reckless love of God. It's reckless in the sense <laughs> that all he had, everything Jesus had was laid out for our redemption because he loved us. That is a great love. Everything was risked on loving us. And Jesus turns around and says, love other people like that. Love other Christians like that. It's greater love than I can have for the people that I like. It's greater love than I can have for, for, for myself. It's the love that God gives me to love other people. The other thing he does, so like Judas, oh my gosh, he washed the, that guy's feet. You know, everybody ran away. Peter denied him three times, cursed when a little girl came up and asked him if he was one of Jesus' disciples. He cursed at her. Everybody runs away from Christ. He washes their feet. All these people who are about to fail him miserably, Jesus stoops down and washes their feet. This kind of love that Jesus shows them isn't based on merit. They're not earning anything. When he comes down to his worst time, they leave him, and he looks at them and he commands them to love each other just like that. I just don't think he could be any clearer in what he's trying to explain to us. It's not by our doctrinal clarity or our moral purity or our impressive worship that everybody knows that we are his disciples. It is quite simply and clearly by how we love each other. Acts of service and sacrifice. Acts that point to the love that we have, that, that we say that we have in Jesus. That is what this looks like. The other thing I want you to understand, God, we don't relate to this very well, but he 
girds up his robes, which means he would have picked up the middle part of it where his legs would have been exposed. And he grabs a towel, right? Maybe even use the hem of his own garment to wipe and wash their feet. Now, when he does this, the disciples are like, whoa, you can't do that. You've got to read the rest of the passage. But the disciples are like, you cannot wash my feet. That is below you. It's, uh, it's actually kind of degrading to me because you put yourself below me and I realize I should be below you. You know, and all, and just to have this whole thing, it was like a shocking thing that he did for them. He shocks his disciples. Peter can't understand this. He's just blown away. I love Peter because he says what I'm thinking for the most part. He says something like this. He's like, God, are you kidding me, Lord? You're going to wash my feet? No way. This is embarrassing. You can't do that. This is what slaves do. This is what servants do. And we are supposed to keep this hierarchy functioning, Jesus, and you're blowing it up. But Jesus says this back to Peter. He says, no, dude, listen. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Something like this. And I think he does mean it like this. There's a salvation part, but I think he says, means this also. Unless you take the position of the bottom, the people who are in the bottom part of society, you cannot see me clearly. Unless you lovingly identify with and serve the people who are at the bottom of the rung, you really can't understand my mission. You really can't understand who I am and what I'm actually here to do. This is the same night that they have the Lord's Supper. We call the Lord's Supper. This is the same evening. So listen, now Jesus is tying all this together. So how can we possibly celebrate the, the reckless love of God, sing about that accurately? How can we celebrate the Lord's Supper if we're ignoring loving other Christians? That has to be part of the message that Jesus has for us here. So now we're stuck with, okay, Pastor Joe, I get it. 40 minutes, be done already. I'm supposed to love people. I got it. So what does that mean? Do I have to walk around with a towel and wash everybody's feet? Because if you're like me, you're like, do you have any idea what kind of stank is on those feet, man? And there's diseases and fungus and just, oh my gosh, I, I, can't, I can't do it. So do I have to walk around with a towel? And, and here's my answer to that. I think, yeah, I think yes. I think you're supposed to wash people's feet. Not kind of out of a rote ob obedience or like I got to perform this way and not and definitely not for those people who are going to love us back I don't wash the people's feet who are going to wash my feet verses 1 through 4 I just want to he says again he says having loved them he loved them to the end he put on his towel and he washed Judas Iscariot's feet So this goes way beyond baby Jesus Christmas, right? And this goes way beyond, God, it's the new year. Help me to eat less Oreos this year, right? This is way, way beyond those things that we think tend to be really important. This is Jesus transforming our hearts so that we love our enemies. Those people who set out to hurt us. Those people who are used by evil to hurt us. The most unlovable people. Not a sentimental way, a tangible, real act of love way, which means we're going to look for justice for people. One of the key ways we can show the love of God is to seek justice for people, for those who are downtrodden and on the outside of things. Here's another practical way. Some of you guys and 
adults and everything, you like, you love people. How, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of us have a friend, um, a, a Christian, and they're, they're just headed down a path in life that's, that's really bad. They, they're just making bad choices, just whatever. And how many of us hold back? We think the most loving thing we can do is not confront them. The most loving thing I can do would not be to say that. And I think maybe the opposite might be true. Maybe the best way for me to wash your feet is to point out how stanky your feet are and that you need to be washed. Not judgmentally, not ugly. This is a very humbling act, right? Jesus isn't coming pridefully to them. He's humiliating himself. So maybe the most loving way to wash somebody's feet is to speak real true wisdom into their lives. But I do think it means you walk around with a towel. I contemplated putting a towel on everybody's chair today because I think it's kind of that practical and that real. Man, how can we do this? This is interesting. Jesus says also at another point um, in the text over here in verses uh, 13 through 18, he says this. He says, you're blessed if you do this for other people. He just throws it in there. It's like one little throwaway verse. You're blessed if you do this for other people. Well, we all want to be blessed. It's the new year. Bless me, Lord. Bless me. What does this look like? One of the best parts of the gospel, and that sounds crazy. <laughs> one of the parts of the gospel I'm most appreciative of maybe right now is this. And we talked about it, but that Jesus really is rebirthing my heart. Like he's recreating me right now. He's remaking who I am. Because I don't want to love people. That's not normal for me. That's not natural for me, right? I need something in me so that my knee-jerk reaction isn't, she's crazy, that was stupid. What a crazy, you know, shirt she has on today, right? Why do they root for the Texans? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Did that come out? Did I say that out loud? <laughs> I'm going to be in your same boat next week, so just... We can cry on each other's shoulders then. I need the, see, I need the heart, I need God changing my heart, right? It just came out. Thank you, thank you. His work on the cross, man, his resurrection, the gospel means that he is creating a new group of people. Listen, and love governs everything we do. Love governs everything we do. Love governs everything. Could you come in here this morning thinking about that? Some of you came in, you're like, I got to serve donuts. Oh, my gosh. I got to go put out signs. Oh, my gosh. I got to watch children and kids. Is love governing everything you do? Did you come in this morning thinking, I'm going to give a donut to someone this week, and it's the best thing somebody's ever going to give them this week? Some of us had wonderful Christmases and New Year's, and some of us had awful Christmases and New Year's. And the smiling face that they saw, this week, and the, sh the shaking hand they got this week, and the donut they, and the coffee they got, that's the best thing they've gotten in the last two weeks. Did you come in this morning thinking, love is going to govern my relationships this morning? That's the gospel. The gospel is changing us into a group of people that love governs how we deal with one another. I'm going to quote this, and we'll be done. Tim Keller says this, the gospel energizes our friendships, our marriages, our relationships with parents and children, with our peers, as well as those who are older and younger, without the gospel, we will either provoke those to whom we feel superior or we will envy those to whom we feel inferior. That's fantastic. Without the gospel, we will either provoke those to whom we feel superior or we will envy those to whom we feel inferior. But since the gospel has both humbled us and yet has assured us of our loveness that God loves us, 
We are free from envy and pride, inferiority and superiority, free to love each other the way Jesus tells us to. The gospel changes everything. And it's giving us hearts that recreate us so we can love each other the way Jesus told us to. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. I have a couple of questions for you to pray through as we wrap up our time. These are big. I think these are kind of heavy questions. First of all, who in this room needs to know that you are loved by God? You are loved by God. And I don't mean that in a general sense. God loves everyone. I mean it in a specific sense. Jesus loved these 12 guys. They were his guys. And you're like, man, I want to be in that group. Some of us need to know God's love through Jesus Christ because that's how we get there. Jesus died for you. God sent his son to die for you. That's how you have a relationship with God. That's how he looks at you and he says, I have loved you from the beginning. I'm going to love you to the end because you follow me in faith. Some of you need to cry out to God. I want to know your love like that. Give me that. For the first time in my life, I recognize how far away I am and that the only way to you is through Jesus. I receive that. Forgive me of my sins. I want to know your love. Do that this morning. Pray that prayer. Talk to God, right, if that's the first time for you. Second thing I want to ask is, who needs you to love them? Can you ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, can you just show me, give me a picture, a, a name, a face in my, my head and my heart right now? Who needs you to love them? If you want to get specific, you'll think in this room, who, who's my church family? needs me to love them get a little more specific who needs to know God's love through you Holy Spirit can can you use me to show somebody else that you love them do that I want to generously invest my life in other people I want to love them show them your love here's another one tougher needs to be put in awe of how you love them? Who needs to be shocked by your love, right? Jesus loved them and he served them in a shocking way. Who needs to be shocked by your love? Like you're going to step outside and do something a little nutty, a little crazy, but it's what God wants you to do. It's radical. You're going to invest yourself generously and they're going to look back and go, how could you do that? And you'll say, because Jesus loves me. I draw from an infinite well of love and I can love you like that. Father, we want to pray that we would be this kind of people, this kind of church. We want to ask you, God, to work in us, to change our hearts, to radically allow us to love others like this. As we go into this year, I I do, I pray for myself. I want to plant trees under which I'll never sit. That means I've got to give myself away to people. I have to plant seeds. I've got to cast my seed on that water generously. God, let us love each other like that this year. And as the world looks in, as people outside look inside, let them see the love that we have for each other and just be in awe of it. Isn't this something, God, that we can really sell to people is, man, my church loves people well. You need to come with me. You need to see what this is about. God, let us be that kind of church. We love you. We thank you that you're changing our hearts so that we can love each other really well, God. Use us however you want to, to be your loving church. In your name we pray, amen.